The Mexican army of that day was hardly an organization. The private soldier was picked up from the lower class of the inhabitants when wanted. His consent was not asked. He was poorly clothed, worse fed, and seldom paid. He was turned adrift when no longer wanted. The officers of the lower grades were but little superior to the men. With all this, I have seen as brave stands made by some of these men as I have ever seen made by soldiers. Now, Mexico has a standing army larger than that of the United States. They have a military school modeled after West Point. Their officers are educated and, no doubt, generally brave. The Mexican War of 1846 to 1848 would be an impossibility in this generation. The Mexicans have shown a patriotism, which it would be well if we would imitate in part, but with more regard to truth. They celebrate the anniversaries of Chapultepec and Molina del Rey as a very great victories. The anniversaries are recognized as national holidays. At these two battles, while the United States troops were victorious, it was a very great sacrifice of life compared with what the Mexicans suffered. The Mexicans, as on many other occasions, stood up as well as any troops ever did. The trouble seemed to be the lack of experience among the officers, which led them, after a certain time, to simply quit, without being particularly whipped, but because they had fought enough. Their authorities of the present day grow enthusiastic over the theme when telling of these victories, and speak with pride of the large sum of money they forced us to pay in the end. With us, now twenty years after the close of the most stupendous war ever known, we have writers who profess devotion to the nation, engaged in trying to prove that the Union forces were not victorious. Practically, they say, we were slashed around from Donelson to Vicksburg and to Chattanooga, and in the east from Gettysburg to Appomattox, when the physical rebellion gave out from sheer exhaustion. There is no difference in the amount of romance in the two stories. I would not have the anniversaries of our victories celebrated, nor those of our defeats made fast days and spent in humiliation and prayer, but I would like to see truthful history written. And that is from the memoirs of Ulysses Grant, 1885. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. and welcome to the Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford, and I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, our foundation's chief of intelligence and research. Thank you for being here, Josh, and thank you for reading that passage. There's a lot that I want to highlight in that, but first I want to let our listeners know what we've been up to. And Josh and I, we have been uh, visiting Mexico City. We have. We just came back from there last week. And it was a very productive time. We had some amazing meetings. But before we go into all of that, there is a lot to unpack. I really want to highlight something that your your passage talks about uh, and then use that to segue into something that we were able to see in Mexico City. Sure. So your passage talks about some of the virtues of the Mexican soldiers, right? Right. And how a lot of them were were such patriots and they really loved their land and they wanted to fight for their land, but their history, I guess their reputation has been a bit tarnished by maybe some of these military elites. Is is that what the passage is kind of trying to summarize? Yeah, no, good question. And I think this is something worth delving into quite a bit. Uh, you know, Grant uh, in his memoirs. So, so uh, by the way, uh, any American who has not read Grant's memoirs ought to do so. Uh, I read them for the first time, I'm, I'm a bit embarrassed to say, only about a year and a half ago. 
And prior to reading them, I would have told you that I understood the outlines of the Civil War fairly well. Uh, afterwards, I realized how little I knew, which truly is one of the great works of American literature. Grant, uh, among his many virtues, uh, and, and to me, he was one of the greatest Americans ever to live, uh, has a generosity uh, in him uh, toward um, uh, those whom he faced on the battlefield. This is actually true of Southern soldiers as well uh, in the Civil War. Um, but in this passage, he talks about the individual Mexican soldier uh, and uh, the reality, uh, mm -hmm. you know, born from experience, that uh, he perceives them as performing basically as well as the individual American soldier, mm -hmm. that, uh, that the deficiency in kind of Mexican war leadership um, really resided sort of at the, at the level of the officer and the political class who had uh, this measure of, you know, he calls quit uh, in mm. them, that uh, when they have enough, uh, they simply they simply quit the field. And uh, so what, you know, what Grant is trying to communicate here is that, um, is that there really is not an inferiority of the individual Mexican in arms uh, in his experience in the War of 1846 to 1848. And I think you can extend that really society-wide. What's interesting to me is this belief, uh, and we've talked about this a little bit uh, in this podcast in previous episodes, this belief in the kind of the inferiority of Mexican arms uh, or even of the Mexican soldier to an extent. You can see it persist in things like the exhibit at the National History Museum at Chapultepec, which asserts that the war between the United States and Mexico was always going to be lost by Mexico because the United States simply had a superior army with superior soldiers. Not necessarily the case. There are times in Mexican history where this mythos gets turned on its head. Um, uh, you see it, uh, for example, there's a, there's a very interesting documentary series called uh, Patria, um, by uh, Paco Ignacio Taibo, uh, who, who I met, by the way, in Mexico City, uh, just on the street, uh, met him. And he, he had no interest in speaking to me, um, uh, kind of waved me off. But uh, a, a very interesting sort of leftist public intellectual. Uh, and he did this documentary called Patria, which you can find, uh, I think, on YouTube. Uh, just turn on the captions for those of you who don't know Spanish. Uh, it's worth watching. But he covers this period, basically, of uh, the reform wars and the French occupation of Mexico. And uh, it, it was it was very interesting to me rewatching it uh, just in the past seven days because I had to get my Mexico City content and after returning, it, it, as you know, Melissa, it's a city that you miss uh, after oh, you yeah. after you leave it for sure. Absolutely. Um, but he talks about the Battle of Puebla, which is the famous Cinco de Mayo, uh, 1862. So May 5th, 1862, uh, they beat the French at Puebla. It's a temporary defeat. Uh, Ignacio Zaragoza and his troops. Uh, defeat the defeat the French. By the way, Ignacio Zaragoza, a native-born Texan, um, there's a statue of him at Goliad because he was born outside the Presidio of Goliad. So anybody who goes to Goliad, in addition to honoring the Texans who fell there during the Texas Revolution, you also get an opportunity to see the birthplace of this great Mexican hero who wins uh, who wins at the Battle of Puebla. But the the exhortation that he gives to the Mexican soldiers at Puebla is he praises the French as having the best army in the world. I think that was somewhat debatable in 1862, but you know, we'll roll with it. Uh, France is still sort of on the pre-Franco-Prussian War, post-Napoleonic mm -hmm. uh, reputational high. And, uh, and, and, and he says to them, uh, uh, you know, men, we're about to face the best army in the world, uh, but we have with us uh, the, best, the best sons of Mexico with us. And as, as Ignacio Taibo tells us, uh, it's, uh, this had this electrifying effect among the soldiers. 
Um, uh, and, and, and nowadays, uh, you don't necessarily see that as much. There's no, and, and, and you and I had conversations in Mexico City yeah. uh, like this. There's no culture of honoring those who fell for Mexico in quite the same way. Not to say it doesn't necessarily exist, but it's very context specific. It's the, 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 the heroic children of Chapultepec, things like that. Right. But like an Arlington Cemetery is unthinkable. In, oh yeah, in the Mexican context. So, uh, you tell me where you want to go from that. Okay, but, uh, so it's a rich I, vein. No, thank you. But I, I really think that this is very relevant to something that you saw last week. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. I wasn't there to experience it because I got there a few days after you. I would have loved to, but you actually wrote a really interesting, uh, a fantastic publication about the experience that you had visiting the Mexico City National Cemetery. Sure. Which doesn't sound like it when you hear it, but it's actually an American cemetery in Mexico. It is. To honor, it's the resting place of the fallen American soldiers that died in Mexico. And you visited there. You had a very interesting experience. You met a Mexican family. You met the the, the groundskeeper uh, right. of, the, the of the cemetery. Yeah, yeah, the administrator. So do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about that? We're definitely going to link the whole publication for them to read. Yeah. But do you want to summarize it? Sure, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the, the, the Mexico City National Cemetery is part of a network of, of, of U.S administered and run cemeteries around the world run mm -hmm. by the American Battle Monuments Commission. And so anybody who's ever been to have the privilege of going to Normandy or to uh, the Meuse Argonne and seeing the American cemeteries there overseas, these cemeteries are typically run by the American Battle Monuments Commission. There's one in North Africa too, which oh, wow. is quite interesting. Yeah. Um, uh, and and I don't know if this is universally true, but often uh, the cemeteries are, are essentially deeded over a sovereign US soil. So the idea is that even though these soldiers are buried in a foreign land. They're still mm. in American soil, and so like an embassy, kind of. Yeah, like yeah. right, exactly. It's 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 sovereign territory. It's a it's an act of graciousness on the host nation's part for sure. So the so the Mexico City National Cemetery was founded in 1851, uh, not long after the close of the war in 1848, and uh, it holds several hundred uh, r remains of veterans who fought in in the Mexico City campaign. Now there was a, another campaign up north. Zachary Taylor. Uh, I don't believe there's any American cemetery up there. I think those remains were either uh, you know, kind of buried on site and forgotten, which was not uncommon then, or repatriated to the United States. But this cemetery is 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 sovereign U.S. soil. It's 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 quite small. Uh, I would say maybe half an acre. I'm not too oh, I'm not too good at judging small. that. Uh, yeah. It's very very small. Um, but it holds uh, several hundred Americans, and it's it's. Um, it's sort of a, a relic of days gone by, uh, in the sense that uh, you know, from from 1851 at its opening through, I believe, the early 1920s, if you were a veteran, uh, if you were an American veteran, uh, you could be buried uh, at the cemetery. And so, it's not just uh, U.S. Mexico War veterans who were buried there. There's Civil War veterans. Um, interestingly enough, uh, Confederate uh, soldiers who ended oh, up in Mexico yeah. considered American veterans, uh, which is a wise and prudential move on the part of you know contemporaneous uh, you know politics. Uh, and so you have this very interesting juxtaposition of graves. Uh, there's one section of it uh, as you enter on the east side uh, where you can find um, this U.S. colored trooper uh, who's who's buried there. He's a, he's a man who fought for the United States, ended up in Mexico. There's several Buffalo soldiers uh, who were buried there, uh, and then kind of diagonal to him, there is a, a Confederate Brigadier General uh, who's buried off to the side. And that kind of union and memorialization um, is really testament, I think, to the generosity uh, and wisdom of the nation at the time that, uh, that, this, that, that these burials and these internments were conceived. 
Um, I'm not sure if something like this could exist now uh, in full candor. Um, you know, there's, there's certainly not going to be an American cemetery in Iraq or Afghanistan. Oh, right. um, uh, you know, the remains are now repatriated home. So all of which is to say, uh, for those who go to Mexico City, it's it's if you're if you're a U.S. citizen, it's well worth visiting because it's part of your heritage. It's part of you know our our history uh, that we need to understand. But what was interesting in the conversation with the administrator. So this is a gentleman who's a U.S. citizen, uh, and he told me his backstory. Um, uh, emigrated to the United States when he was 11 years old from, I believe, San Luis Potosi. Uh, so he is he is Mexican by birth. Uh, ended up serving for many decades in the United States Army. Uh, had another career in the FBI. Um, so really gave of himself uh, to, to 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 his adopted country. Yeah. Um, and now uh, in I, I don't know if I can call him his retirement years, but certainly after a full career, uh, he is now uh, he's a GS federal employee who is administering this very small cemetery in Mexico City. And what he shared with me was very interesting, uh, which was that, you know, he came down with the idea because he's he's American, he's been in the United States since he was 11. Right. He came down with this idea that there was going to be uh, sort of this compatibility of sort of martial cultures and, and, and um, cultures of memorialization right. uh, with the United States and Mexico. And what he's found is that it, it wasn't true. Um, that uh, that his efforts to do, um, not to put words in his mouth, but his efforts to do joint commemorations, to um, uh, to kind of make the cemetery an epicenter of, of study and remembrance and, and commemoration on both the U.S. and Mexican side, w which is exactly the kind of thing that would happen in France, by the way, um, uh, was met with effective disinterest from, from uh, those in power in Mexico. Um, individual Mexicans, he said, would sometimes wander in off the streets. And they would uh, they would they, they would express surprise. They didn't know there was a U.S. cemetery there, mm -hmm. um, uh, and and uh, in, in his telling, they were all very respectful. I met a Mexican family there, and we actually had a very good conversation. I, I have ancestors who were present uh, in the Mexican War uh, on both my on both my father's and mother's side, um, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, and so we were able to talk about that. Um, uh, but uh, you know, he said that to the extent that uh, kind of Mexican elites engaged with it, uh, it was with a sense of distaste that there's still invaders on Mexican soil. Mm. Um, uh, and in the 1970s, and this is publicly documented, uh, there, there was actually an effort to uh, eradicate the cemetery entirely by the Mexican authorities. They wanted to put a freeway through it, and um, uh, and so uh, the 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 U.S. side said that they would. They would agree to it if there was another cemetery that was allocated. So they'd move the remains outside of Mexico City, but that cemetery also had to be, um, you know, sovereign U.S. soil and you know, right. kind of the same terms of engagement as the 1851 internment. And uh, the Mexican state wouldn't do it. So what they ended up doing was uh, putting the free freeway through just half of it, and they had to move the bodies from the one half to oh, the other I didn't side. Know that part. Um, yeah, yeah, which which is a signal um, right. uh, as to kind of the confusion of memory that's there. Well, one thing that's very interesting to me, and honestly, I, I wish I could say it was a little bit more shocking, but mm -hmm. you say that there is, I don't know if a lot, but some Mexicans that really disapprove of this, right? They think that the Americans, the invaders should not still have a place on their soil. Mm -hmm. And one thing that hadn't really stuck out to me as much as it did on this trip is that there is still so much historical tension between the U.S. and Mexico. Yeah. We have had, you know, good relations sometimes. And then when you look back at history, we have had times of cooperation, but we've also had times of a lot of conflict. And there's people that have really hung on to that um, at all levels. I think that yeah. even at the highest levels of the Mexican government, like the president 
including still the has yeah. so much disdain um, for the U.S. And I wonder, do you think that some of that has to do with the historical tension there and the history between both countries? Yeah, well, right. That's the, the that's the source of it. And, and 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 we should be clear that it would be inevitable that two countries like the United States and Mexico were always going to have conflicting points. Uh, we have very different civic cultures. We have very different cultures of origin. Right. Uh, you know, there's not. I mean, j j just imagine the the uh, the tension and diversity within the United States. This kind of the Albion seed thesis of you know America is made uh, in origin. Um, by individuals who come from what at the time were perceived as very different backgrounds, uh, you know, Scotch-Irish versus English and so on, uh, and it was it was quite different. So, so, so a background in the Mexican case that is explicitly Spanish, explicitly um, uh, indigenous in many cases, and then the heterogeneity within that indigenous heritage, um, you know, Tlaxcaltecas and Nahuas are treated very, very differently um, uh, in lots of ways. And so, and so, uh, you know, I, I think there, from a historical standpoint, there was always going to be this font of tension. That being said, uh, with the with the amount of, of um, you know, prospective points of conflicts that exist, uh, the US and Mexico have actually done pretty well, uh, I would say, in the long run. It may or may not look that way from the Mexican side of things, but I would say from a, from a Texan side, um, uh, it's, you know, we, until really the past decade and a half, we right. arrived kind of at this modus vivendi, which, which, which I think was, was, was quite good. But to your point, uh, it's interesting, uh, to, to have had the conversations, uh, that we did have in Mexico city kind of over and over and over with this referentialism toward, um, sort of historic suspicion, historic right. resentment, historic, uh, uh, you know, this and that, and the extent to which, uh, you know, that gets, um, that that's a real source of, of of tension versus something that gets instrumentalized to validate something that's existing now, which I think is really the case with the current Mexican president. Right. Uh, varies varies quite a bit, but it's definitely there. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely it's there. And then one other thing that I wanted to talk about that you talk a little bit about in your publication is do you think that Mexicans have this general sentiment about maybe their fallen soldiers as well? Um, I can tell you, I think that that is a sentiment that happens in a lot of countries, uh, not just mm -hmm. Mexico. I think largely a lot of Latin America feels that way about their fallen soldiers for different reasons, right? Varying by countries. But right. why do you think that not all of the Mexican people, but in general, the culture seems to not have a lot of... Uh, respect some of them even have like a, a disdain for their fallen soldiers why do you think that is you know you, you have mentioned this uh before uh in the bolivian context yeah uh, which is which is the one that you're familiar with and this idea that uh if you if you're in law enforcement or if you're a soldier that you know you 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 are that uh, and you were in these professions because you were already lower class and so and so there's sort of this class condescension yeah. i think that comes into a lot of it um, which may or may not be true. I'm not qualified to say, uh, but uh, but but at the same time, um, uh, you know, and and then you've got sort of the historical record, right? So so I won't speak to Bolivian military history. I only know about one Bolivian war. It's the War of the Pacific. When I guess uh, yeah, lost the coastline, right? Yes. And so and so there's it was very traumatic. Very traumatic. Yeah. The Chileans conquered it. I think the Atacama. Is yeah. that right? Yeah. yeah. The um, Litoral. Is what we oh, call it. oh, really? And then yeah. after that, we had one. We haven't had a war in a very long time. But after that, we had the Guerra del Chaco, which was versus almost the, uh, more traumatic. Versus the Paraguayans. Yes. yes. And that was almost more traumatic because 
uh, we also lost a lot of land, and they were largely the underdogs. And it was, I believe, the bloodiest war in Latin American history. And so... Oh, wiped it, out, what, like a third of... Uh, it, I forget the, the, I don't, the stat, but... It, I think it, it was like at least 100,000 people, which is a lot. It gutted Paraguay, yeah. Yeah, right, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. So, yes, we've had very traumatic wars, and maybe that goes towards explaining why people aren't so proud of their fallen soldiers, because... We don't have a lot of victories to be proud of. It's so I can't speak for the Mexicans, but yeah. I think that in Bolivia, maybe some of the lack of respect there is for fallen soldiers. Yes, a lot of it is corruption. Corruption right. is huge in Bolivia. We know they're involved in the cocaine trafficking. We know they're involved in organized crime, the military, the police, all of it. Mm -hmm. So it's hard to have respect for historically some of the military when currently the military is so bad, right? Right. And then there's also not a lot of patriotism, I think. There's not the same like love for for the land and the country that you see in the US just because of how bad the government is, how bad the leadership is. It's 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 hard to, to have that love for your country when right now it's not going well. Right. Um, we have bad leadership, they're working against the people. And then, like you asked about the wars, I think a large part of it is we're embarrassed about having lost so much in the wars. And so pe so many people are still traumatized by the fact that like, oh, now we're landlocked because the armed forces allowed it to happen with these underdogs. And like a lot of it was bad treaties after the wars. But right. But I think that the U.S. has a lot to celebrate, a lot of victories to be proud of. Well, and maybe, you know, maybe Mexico doesn't feel that way for that reason. It depends on the era. And uh, it, it, there's still a Bolivian naval establishment, though, isn't there? Yeah. Like, like there's yeah. actually like a, like, like a Bolivian admiral for the day that comes when uh, yeah. Chile is finally They're put in this place. Lake Titicaca. That's oh, really? Where, yep. That's where they practice and, and all of it. We still celebrate El Dia del Mar, even though we don't have one. I didn't know that. And we still have a Miss Litoral. Um, like a, really? it's like a, a beauty queen, and um, yeah, that's not ours anymore. That's incredible. So a lot of people are still holding on. the 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 president, our last president, Evo Morales, one of the things he would always say in speeches is, "We're gonna get it back." Like a lot of people still have a lot of hope this that is from that like might happen. 1883, though, right? I mean, it's, it's been a long time, a long time, but no yeah. one's let it go. And even to this day, Bolivians and Chileans believe it or not, don't really get along. We don't have good diplomatic relations. Right. And even when when we were kids and like a little Chilean kid would join the school, people would be really mean to them. So there's still a lot of tension in that relationship. Amazing. It's yeah. like a it's like a very dusty Alsace Lorraine. Yeah. Uh, wow, that's incredible. Um uh well, let me push back a little bit on this. Uh it's not just because the United States has victories to its credit historically that we have this culture of, of honoring soldiers. Um, uh, in fact, you know, I would argue that uh, a lot of the most, how would I put it, um, uh, impressive and significant commemorations of, of soldiers and the fallen in the American context uh, come with, thing, with defeats, things like the Alamo, right. 
there's a reason that the Vietnam uh, Wall in Washington D.C. is so revered and so visited. Uh, you know, you know that was that, that was a defeat. And I would also argue that uh, that uh, you know the 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 kind of lack I think lackluster is the term I'll use, but the lackluster you know American military record of the past twenty years has not dimmed popular affection for the figure of the soldier in the yeah, United States. I'd say that's true. And so and so there's there's you know I, I don't think you're wrong. I mean obviously we like having positive things to celebrate, but at the same time. Consider the War of 1812, uh, which was effectively a strategic draw, right. uh, but in which we were defeated. The United States was defeated uh, soundly by the Canadians. Uh, how embarrassing is that? Um, but uh, you know they beat us at Queenston Heights. Um, uh, they they uh, they burned the capital of the U.S. Uh, although that might be a charitable act uh, in some sense uh, in in 2023. Yeah. But but. Uh, all of which is to say that, um, that, that there's something else going on, and uh, and here, here's my thesis, which may be wrong, but I'd be curious curious what you think about. Um, you know, Grant, uh, and and again, you know, to to go back to the Grant passage, I mean, Grant talks about his perception that there's nothing wrong with the individual Mexican soldier, that it's mm -hmm. really the elite class. That elite class is also the narrative myth maker in in a Latin American context, um, especially in a Mexican context. So yeah. you can you can look at the Mexican record in one of a few ways. Uh, particularly in the 19th century, Mexico had to face the armies of Spain, France, the United Kingdom, and the United States, which is a pretty tough record. And and actually, you know, I, I would argue the US accepted they generally did pretty well. They beat the Spanish. They ended up beating the French. Uh, the UK, they kind of saw off, um, you know, after a brief, mm -hmm. brief uh, port bombardment. Um, so it's it's not actually a record to be ashamed of. I mean, this is not to diminish or to deny any of the sort of societal trauma that attached uh, to it. Um, uh, but uh, why would from this record, uh, you know, you, you think about think about if this happened to the United States, if we had a record of like defeating every major Western European power in the 19th century, and maybe we lost one or two, but uh, you, you can you can sort of imagine what that would inspire in like old Virginia, for example, or South Carolina, there would be this, you know, the celebration of, you know, it's, right. it's, it's our heroes who beat the French, you know, oh, things yeah. like that. And that doesn't happen there. So 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 my theory is this, my theory is that is that is that this culture doesn't exist, and I'm speaking specifically to Mexico. I won't speak to Bolivia or any, any other place, um, because there is a need for this elite class to explain its failure away and to blame somebody else uh, for what is manifestly what I think Grant accurately showed uh, was a dysfunction among a class that should have been a leadership class, and I think that continues today. Yeah. In the modern Mexican context. No, I totally agree. And I think a lot of that is relevant in Bolivia as well and maybe some of the other Latin American countries. But um, I think we could discuss this for a long time. But Please. I really yeah, also no, no. want to continue discussing some of the other things that we learned in Mexico. Um, not last week, mm -hmm. but the week before. Um, we had a lot of great productive conversations with a huge range of different people. Yes. But I think that one of the, th the things that we came home with was a lot of those conversations were negative. And a lot of the people that we talked to don't feel very optimistic about the future of the U.S.-Mexico relationship. That's right. On the contrary, they don't see it going in a good place. They realize that we are at an all-time low as far as cooperation goes between mm -hmm. both countries, but they don't see it getting any better. Would you would you say that that's accurate? 
Yeah, yeah. And, and of course, we promised everybody that we talked with. So uh, if you spoke with us in Mexico City, thank you. Um, uh, but we told you to be off the record and it will stay that way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so so while honoring the off the record promise that we made, because uh, it's so important to be able to have these conversations, I would say it's fair to say that we had a, a variety of conversations with Americans, with Mexicans, oh, yeah. uh, mostly with Mexicans. Uh, and then among the Mexicans, uh, a, r- a remarkable spectrum of opinion, uh, you, oh, know, yeah. you know, left of center intellectuals to, you know, kind of conservative academics and journalists and everybody in between, um, political types, reporters, right. uh, uh, fascinating, fascinating stuff. Um, and, and honestly, every day, uh, I don't know how you felt about it, every day I felt like my brain was full. And I couldn't possibly have any more conversations uh, that day, but just, it kept going and going and going. Yeah. Um, so uh, I'm still processing it 10 days later. Yeah. But yeah, you know, it, it's, it was interesting that despite that spectrum of opinion, and I think uh, a decade ago, thinking back to conversations that I had in Mexico City a decade ago, uh, that there would have been a diversity of views. And now what's remarkable and to your point, very alarming is the uniformity of views from all sides that things are as bad as they have been in over 40 years mm-hmm. and 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 that there's no pathway uh, to things getting better and there seems to be if i could describe the consensus and broad outline and then we can dive in on any point that you'd like uh, melissa um, uh, that there is a belief that the uh, that the current mexican regime uh, is is semi-permanent is going to persist at least through the end of this decade Obviously, the current president, AMLO, is going to be out of power next year in December right. 2024. He'll hand over to someone else. There's no good options uh, to hand to. You not either, a single um, one. No, not a single one. I mean, <laughs> there, I mean, there's three. If I can go into this very briefly, there's yeah, like, there's like three, three, three plausible contenders, right? There's Claudia Scheinbaum, who is the mayor of Mexico City, who is effectively um, – uh, uh, what was it in Spanish you kept saying? A puppet. It's uh, uh, titere. a titere. Yeah. She's going to be one of titere for for for, for Amlo. Yeah, uh, and who's so going to be pulling the strings. I actually right? think, like like after the conversations that we've had, I think she's the one who's who's most likely because because she's viewed as kind of kind of uh, she's going to be the like 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 the Dilma to his to yeah. his uh, to his Lula. She won't he can, push back. She won't push back. He yeah. can kind of control her because he doesn't really have any intention of walking off the scene. Um, so there's her. She's hyper progressive. She's super. Um, uh, uh, you, you should you should follow her on Instagram if you haven't. So I, I know Instagram is I a thing. Is I a should. thing now. Yeah. You should follow her on Instagram. What's very interesting is that there's sort of this virtue signaling. You and I haven't discussed this, but no. it's all just. Uh, so if you have a different opinion, totally fine. This drives me crazy though. Uh, todos y todas, las y los, like this whole like like this this uh, this desire, which is imported straight from English speaking academia, to right. make um, to make Spanish a gender neutral language. More inclusive. Todes, right. todes, amigas, oh, okay. uh, you know, all these, all these phrases, it's, it's, it's terrible. And so when you look at Claudia Scheinbaum's Instagram, uh, what she does is she writes, she writes, she writes todos with a, with an at symbol with the, where the second O should be. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's todas y todas, todas y todas. It's, 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 it's pure progressive signaling. And, and it really signals her, basically her ideological emptiness. Um, and the fact that she can be uh, controlled. So, so she's one candidate. The other is Marcelo Ebrard, who is currently promoting a book, mm-hmm. um, Un Camino por México, mm-hmm. The Road from Mexico, which no one will read. It's a campaign book. Oh. Um, but that uh, he is very well integrated into this Porto de Sao Paulo kind of leftist yes. globalist circle and, uh, you know, is, is um, moves among 
the Castro, you know, I'm sorry, the Castros are gone, but uh, the, the Cuban regime and the Nicaraguans and Lula and Venezuela and things like that. So he's really part of that Latin America left right. set. So he's bad news. And then, and then the third candidate, uh, who's kind of a distant, distant, uh, a distant third, but still on there, is uh, Adán Augusto, who is the Minister of the Interior, the, you know, with the equivalent Minister of the Interior, yeah. and and is on the Guacamaya leaks, is having um, given uh, police files to cartel members in Tabasco. Oh. And isn't he Amlo's cousin? Uh, yes, which I didn't realize. Yeah. He's he's a family member yeah. uh, of Amlo as well, which also sort of you know should set off a light bulb among people. Yeah, thank you for reminding me of that. I, I, it's it, it's astonishing. But all of which to say, th- th- there's another candidate who's um, in the Senate, but uh, I don't think anybody takes him takes him too seriously. But all of which is to say, like 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 none of these are good outcomes. Mm-mm. And so through at minimum December 2030, uh, you're going to have this um, this corrupt cartel enmeshed left-wing, um, you know, nakedly socialist uh, kind of regime that's going to continue to control Mexico and is probably going to become more and more and more antagonistic toward the United States. And yeah. what I what, what I think is going to happen, uh, and I don't say this with any joy at all, is that uh, even on the American left, there's going to be a realization that Mexico, which has had a de facto strategic partnership with the United States, really from you can you can date it as you wish, but basically 1988-ish all the way through 2018, honestly, has basically dropped out of that role uh, and is yeah. now on a much more antagonistic path, not just because of the cartel and corruption, but also from a strategic standpoint uh, as well. And that's going to lead to some very, very negative outcomes. And everybody believes it's going to happen. Nobody is, is uh, enthusiastic about it. And what was interesting to me was the number of people with whom we spoke, people who I did not think would espouse this view. Um, and so these are, you know, I would say, you know, card carrying members of the Mexican like center left elite. So they're not, they're not, you know, they're not in favor of intervention. They're not, you know, pro-Americans. They're they're real legit Mexican patriots. And, and even they were saying, listen, the United States uh, is gonna have to put force on the table, um, mm-hmm. basically, like stand up for your interests because we aren't gonna respect you until uh, you know, ba- and, and until basically the relationship is 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 militarized yeah. to an extent so so go ahead wherever you want to go with that but uh, I, I was shocked there's a lot to unpack there yeah. i think we could do a full episode just talking about the next elections what that could look yeah, like we could, yeah. um, but i think that you're absolutely right when you say there is absolutely no good option on the table right now and the what seems to be the front runner uh claudia scheinbaum mm-hmm. She's not even liked by by the party from from the conversations that I think that we've had. Um, a lot of Morena doesn't seem to like her. Uh, people at first were excited, right? Because she's a woman um, and she's inclusive. She's kind of feeding into this progressive, uh, what we were talking about with inclusion. But the feminists hate her. And that's a conversation that I had in Mexico City because she's kind of this, what should be an empowered woman, right? right? But she's allowing someone else to control everything she says, always standing behind the president. Yes, president. No president. So she's not really that kind of empowered woman in that way. Right. And a lot of Morena does not like her. So it will be interesting to see if she does end up getting the dedazo, what they call mm-hmm. the dedazo right, yeah, from, the from AMLO. Finger, yeah. Or not. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll definitely like, keep our, our listeners updated on some of the changes that happen um, in Mexican politics. But I think that what we were saying with how a lot of people aren't optimistic about this next election and aren't optimistic about U.S.-Mexico relations in general, I think that 
correct me if I'm wrong, but I think that the Mexican people in general are still optimistic about the future of Mexico. Um, yeah. Even with, you know, everything, all the uncertainties of the next election and maybe some things that may happen with the U.S. And this was really fascinating to me. We, we've talked about this general sentiment before, but we, we heard it a lot in Mexico City. And the reason that they're still optimistic about the future of Mexico is because of the U.S. And yeah. this is something that was yeah. repeated to us. But people say, you know, I feel like it doesn't matter how bad it gets here in Mexico. Like the U.S. is not going to let it get that bad. Right. It's not in their best interest. Right. And this is the Mexican people thinking that, that the U.S. is always going to be there to rescue them. Yeah. Uh, do you think that they should maybe rethink that faith in the U.S.? Because we don't know where the U.S. is going either. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, uh, actually. This, this is a phenomenon that was pointed out to me years back. Mm -hmm. uh, and and I, I can't say I took it as seriously as I should have at the time. By our friend David Ogren uh, in Mexico City, who, who who said to me, and this is this is his phrase. He said he said you would be surprised at the extent to which Mexican there is a there is a section of Mexican public opinion and Mexican elite opinion mm -hmm. that wants the United States to pursue a proconsular policy vis-a-vis -vis Mexico. Mm -hmm. That oh yeah man we hate the Americans intervening. They should mind their own business. It's you know you know we're a sovereign country. Soberania over and over. There's mm -hmm. all these you, you probably saw them too. Yeah. All these posters about Soberania all over oh, Mexico yes, City and they got yes. Almo's face and he's sort of like walking into this very dark future that he's creating. Um, <laughs> but uh, but but at the same time there's a belief that uh, well you know the, the United States is going to make it okay. Like no matter what mm -hmm. crazy thing happens, we're not going to be Venezuela. So right. so where I first heard this, you may have heard it in other conversations where I first heard it uh, 10 days ago was uh, in this idea that um, is Mexico going to become Venezuela? Because right now, uh, you know, AMLO and, and, and the Morenistas yeah. really are pursuing it's uh, headed that way. the Venezuela template in Mexico, which I don't think is an overstatement. I would have said before our meetings, I would have said that was an overstatement. I would have said, yeah, you know, he's authoritarian and things like that, but it's not going to Venezuela. Now I'm fully convinced that I was wrong about yeah, that. Me too. They really are pursuing this Venezuela template with Cuban help. Um, uh, which we should also talk about, but uh, but 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 all of which is to say, you know, when when you ask, you know, is this is this going to happen? Like, is Mexico going to become Venezuela? Th there's exactly what you say, which is a sense of well, we won't be Venezuela because in the end, the United States won't allow it, mm -hmm. uh, and that is a, a you know, I, I think I don't remember if we've talked about this on the podcast before. I think we may have in one of the earlier episodes, but uh, you know, we had this meeting in 2019 where we talked with some Mexican business leaders and we asked them, uh, you know, what do you do when you want to change policy in Mexico? And they said the first thing we do is we get on an airplane to Washington, D.C., yeah. get signatures from, you know, from uh, Hispanic caucus members, and then we fly back to Mexico City because mm -hmm. they don't take us seriously unless we have uh, evidence of U.S. Um, uh, in, uh, like interest and involvement and yeah. things like that. And that, that mentality is still there, which is in complete contradiction to all the kind of the nationalist stuff uh, that's there. But to your point, um, it's not a good bet. Uh, it's not, you know, if I were in, I, I would like the United States to be the kind of country now that uh, will will make sure there is good governance um, in a neighbor. But, uh, but I don't think we are. Uh, I don't think it's a good bet to assume that if we go crazy, the Americans are going to step in and save us. That's a, that's a, it's a gross misread 
of where U.S. domestic politics are. It's also a misread of where U.S. grand strategy is. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is another set of conversations that we had in Mexico City, is that the United States has not had uh, a Latin America strategy for 30 to 40 years. Yeah. I mean, we just haven't. We've had this idea that the Western Hemisphere is going to be fine. Um, there's been no reinforcement of our position. And so almost while we haven't been looking, uh, uh, the hemisphere has basically fallen away from us. It's leftist governments almost everywhere, I think except in Panama, right? Like Panama, I think it's the only one left. Panama might, yeah, yeah at least that's what we were told. Yep. I haven't gone through every Caribbean island on it, but uh, all the major governments are are left wing. Um, you know, you've seen the Brazilians, for example. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, the Chinese have been buying everything in their backyard for decades now. Right. Uh, and now they're going to do, I believe, yuan-denominated um, uh, like international uh, trade and transfers, which means that the U.S. dollar is dethroned from its position of primacy in the hemisphere. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of stuff going on. Yeah. And while we've been focused from a strategic perspective on Europe, which we should be, and on Asia, Latin America uh, is is slipping away. And I say slipping away not in the sense that it's ours to own, uh, but we we have a legitimate strategic interest in making sure that it is uh, not a hostile region. And I don't think we can assume that anymore. And to anybody in Latin America who is you know fighting for liberty or freedom or you know you know what have you, and you know God bless you for it because it's a tough landscape. Um, uh, I, I, I say this with regret. I'm not sure you can count on the Americans uh, uh, coming through in the end. I just don't. I just don't know that to be true. Yeah, I completely agree, and yeah. it's sad that that's happened, yeah. right? I agree. But I, I really quick want to shift gears. Um, mm -hmm. I think that we will continue to unpack a lot of the things that we've talked about in Mexico City. But something that I want to touch on is we often talk about a lot of the negative things with the Mexican government. Oh sure. Um, a lot of pessimistic views that we have for where that's going. Um, but I, I kind of want to shift gears to something positive, and that's yeah. how much we loved being in Mexico City. Oh, my gosh. And I think that we can talk about all the negatives about the Mexican government, but daily life in Mexico is amazing, especially in Mexico City. It is. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on that, how much you liked it. <laughs> yeah, uh, I love it, honestly. Uh, if if uh, and, and I've said this before, if I were at a different uh, position in life, and I don't say this with regret because uh, I'm very happy, but um, uh, you know, if I could advise someone in their 20s to go someplace very interesting, uh, uh, you know, go, go to Mexico City. Yeah, it's 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 not necessarily what you think. Uh, th there is a large American expatriate community now in Mexico yeah. City. Um, principally in places like Roma Norte and Condesa, uh, both of which are lovely neighborhoods. Um, but if you go, I would avoid them. Uh, honestly, I wouldn't avoid the neighborhoods, but I would avoid that community uh, because it's uh, there's sort of, as with a lot of expatriate life, expat life, uh, there's a tendency to construct a bubble uh, right. around. And, right. so, and, and so one of the things that kind of always rubbed me wrong, um, there's a nice little coffee shop, you know the one uh, that we went to, it was right around the corner from where we were staying yeah. in, in Roma Norte. And you can sit there, and if I had a dime for every time I've heard this conversation. So you go there, you have some yeah. coffee, it's beautiful, and there's always the one table over, and it's these, it's these folks from California, and they always have the same conversation about how much they love Mexico, yeah. how crazy the U.S. is, just how things run better here, it's a better way of life, and this and that, and things like that, which, you know, it's, it's, it's unrealistic. I mean, let's, let's, let's view things with realism. Uh, governance in Mexico is much worse than anything uh, you'll encounter in the United States. Uh, so, so that's one thing. The other part of it too is that is that there is 
I hesitate to use the word uh, because it, you know, I'm, I'm not a left winger or a progressive. Um, but there is a privilege in being able to get paid in dollars to live in dollars, oh, and so and so privilege. and so you're purchasing you're purchasing sort of this way of life that isn't necessarily uh, reflective of, of of what you see in Mexico City. Yeah. But you know, go go, go elsewhere. Um, go to uh, you know you go to Coyoacan, uh, go to uh, San Angel, go to um, you know you know do do the walk up into um, I think uh, Gustavo Madero, which is up north. Um, uh, go to Itzapalapa, do it during the day um, because it's, it's not the safest place to go. But uh, go to these places and see uh, what, what Mexico City is like. And I think what you'll find is this. You'll find, you'll find the kind of urban life that has not existed in the United States really uh, you know, for maybe the past 70 years or so, depending on when you want yeah. to count it. This very neighborhood-based, very community-based oh, yeah. uh, sort of existence where there really is a variation in inheritance and sense of history and... Um, and even local culture, almost from block to block uh, as you go. And there's something very attractive about that. There's something very attractive about talking with people as you and I did, who said, oh yeah, I grew up on this block. You know, yeah. you know, you know my, my dad lives around the corner. You know, my, my, my grandfather is here. This is the school that I'm gonna send my kids to and they're, mm -hmm. they're around there. And that rootedness matters a ton. Uh, it, it, it really does. And it's something that I think that with, with kind of like American mobility, um, which has had many positive aspects to it. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and, and you and I have certainly benefited from it, but at the same time, we've lost that. Um, uh, you know, we're both in Austin, and and neither of us, I think, it's fair to say. I mean, I, I know your neighborhood, but uh, but it's fair to say that neither of us could walk out uh, yeah. of our front door and find that community uh, on our block. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't exist. They're all transients like us, right. From someplace else. Yeah. And uh, Mexico City still has that. Mexico City is also still a place where there is almost this. Um, this is probably overstating it a bit, but it's almost this Paris in the 20s sort of, uh, not just a cafe culture, but also this almost intellectual life culture. It's oh, still yeah. a place where there is a, um, there's a there's a robust, and I've gotten to partake of this as my Spanish has gotten better, but there's a robust like used books market. And so you can, there's a oh, whole yeah. um, street. It's um, San Justo, I think, in, in El Centro. Have you been on this street where it's all antiquarian book dealers? I think uh, I have, yeah. Have you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you know what I'm talking about, we right? We saw book festivals. Some of the most famous coffee shops are like, we did. you know, big libraries. Yes. So, absolutely. Right, exactly, exactly. It's 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 much more of a European sensibility and this belief that there is still this this life of letters uh, that goes yeah. on and really matters. And now in the United States, that... That whole clique of people uh, has basically committed suicide, um, uh, so they kind of deserve their fate in a way. But it's nice to see that there's a place that it exists. It's nice that there's uh, uh, this environment where I can go to um, Fondo Cultural and run into Paco Ignacio Taibo, yeah. uh, who again had, had zero interest in talking to me. Uh, right. But uh, but uh, but you know, I thought that's that's pretty cool, and that's something that. Yeah. I think the closest you could get to it in the United States would be New York City, but even New York City has has effectively lost uh, most of the qualities. There are some neighborhoods um, uh, where you can still get that has lost most of the qualities uh, that that lent itself to that kind of life. Oh yeah. But man, you know, I, honestly, if 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 it were. If I wasn't so convicted, which, which again I say with regret, that Mexican governance writ large is descending into some very dark places, um, uh, I would almost consider Mexico City to be a place where you could build the future. And I'll I'll I'll, I'll close with this because uh, I could monologue on this for quite a while. Right. But, but you know I want your views uh, too. Um, uh, Mexico City in particular, uh, and a lot of what you see in Mexico, is really a showcase for what the individual Mexican is capable of. Yeah. Despite everything that's gone wrong, the ingenuity, the labor, um, 
the the kind of the patriotic care uh, for place that exists in a place like that uh, is is almost an example um, to those of us in the United States who who may have forgotten what those qualities look like, kind of on a local lit level and something very attractive about yeah, it. What no, do you think? I'm, I think you're totally yeah. right. I think that a lot of the time, we've both loved Mexico City for a long time. Mm-hmm. We visited before for even just, you know, leisure trips sure. and family trips and all of that. And I think that once you come back here and you're learning about all the negative aspects of Mexico, it's kind of easy to lose sight of how amazing Mexico City is, but that's a thing. Mexico City is, is a bubble. And one of the conversations that I had in Mexico City was someone telling me, oh, yeah, it's very safe here. You don't have to worry about anything. People occasionally get pickpocketed, but it's very safe, which I agree. I mean, we walked everywhere. We never felt unsafe, Um, but that's intentional, right? And the person that I was talking to said that it's kind of unsigned, unspoken, unwritten agreement because that's where the families of the politicians live. And that's even where the families of a lot of these drug kingpins and cartels member, members live. Right. So it's everybody sends their families to Mexico City. It's in a bubble. It's safe. It's great. Life is awesome. But that's not the rest of Mexico, right? Yeah. Like The rest of Mexico is largely plagued with a lot of the things that we often talk about, violence, organized crime, um, you know, they've lost a lot of the sovereignty that they used to have over their territory, but Mexico City is in kind of a bubble. Yeah. Have you heard that before? Because that was kind of surprising to me. I just figured, I don't know, like, I guess they just don't operate in Mexico City, but it's very intentional that that's where the families live. They don't touch it. And then the rest of Mexico is kind of descending into chaos. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the uh, and again, this is what I'm what I've been told. Uh, and, and, and my, my direct experience in Mexico is is obviously limited to the border regions and Mexico City itself. Uh, so so I haven't been around Guerrero or Michoacan or, uh, you know, the Bajio or any place like that. But what I'm told is it's it's a patchwork mm. and, and you kind of have to know where to be, where you can be, where you can go uh, and so on. Um, uh, but uh, Mexico City was described to me in 2019 by an American um, political officer as, and this is his quote, gilded lilies on a sea of blood. Gilded lilies, uh, gilded on, a lilies on a sea of blood. Yeah, which is which is extremely vivid and evocative, wow. uh, and I think that's I think that's probably true. Um, uh, so so I can't say the extent to which uh, you know I, it, it rings true to me that family members are there, political uh, you know politicians' families are there, and that actually generates kind of this level of protection. Um, but as with all things, that that lasts until it doesn't. Um, uh, You know, you can think back to the Mexican Revolution and Mexico City was not untouched during the Mexican Revolution. I don't want to give that impression because there were, you know, like the like the tragic days um, when Madero was killed and uh, General Huerta comes to power, saw a lot of violence in the streets of Mexico City. But, uh, you know, compared to what the rest of the country had to endure in that decade of revolution, Mexico City was it was actually largely uh, a reasonably safe place to be. And that seems to be. Uh, repeating itself now uh, in the current Mexican civic breakdown, that the capital um, remains fine, uh, and 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 a place that you and I feel quite safe uh, going to. Right. So well, hopefully it remains that way. <laughs> and the weather's beautiful. Yeah. The jacarandas are out. Oh, it uh, was the most perfect time to visit. It is. And I think that we could talk about that for a whole podcast as well. How much we love Mexico City, but I really want to take this back to. Um, AMLO Mm -hmm. and some of the current politics, because last week 
AMLO wrote a, a letter to the Chinese president asking him to stop fentanyl shipments from oh, sure. Chinese shores to Mexico. Did you see that? Yes, of course, yeah. So this letter was so interesting to me because a lot of the letter just consisted of some venting and complaining about the U.S., which didn't really right. seem relevant to the point of the letter. Um, there was like a lot of throwing shade at the U.S., and I want to sure. read you a quote. Please. Um First of all, he blamed the U.S. for the fentanyl crisis in it. And yeah. this is what he said. Unjustly, they are blaming us for problems that in large measure have to do with their loss of values, their welfare crisis. These positions are in themselves a lack of respect and a threat to our sovereignty. And moreover, they are based on an absurd, manipulative, propagandistic, and demagogic attitude. So I want to get your initial thoughts on this. Um, he's still denying that um, fentanyl is made in Mexico and now, right. but he's asking the Chinese to cooperate with that. Yeah. Uh, but it's weird, right? Because his own administration has admitted that they found all these stash houses where they're producing fentanyl. So I'm I'm, I'm confused. What do you think about this? They've appointed a fentanyl czar, yeah. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's it's amateur hour at the Palacio Nacional. Uh, I mean, the, 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 there's no there's no question about it. This is something that we heard over and over in our conversations, right. that uh, the policymaking in Mexico, um, uh, and you can sort of you can sort of draw a loose parallel to like Trump tweets. There was this critique that uh, that it was it was President Trump's Twitter account that set policymaking for that White House, which was which is not as true as the critics uh, like to say. But um, policymaking in Mexico really is um, almost fully limited to the president's mañaneras. Yeah. And this is an outgrowth of one of the mañanera kind of monologues that he did. Which is this idea that, uh, well, you know, we're not responsible for fentanyl. It's because the Americans don't love their kids. It's because they have social breakdowns. So, but we're going to ask the Chinese for help uh, in this, which is not actually how diplomacy is conducted. He does have a grain of truth in there that there are significant social ills in the United States that are leading to the fentanyl crisis. But it's, uh, and you and I have talked about this, it's multi-causal. Um, uh, it can be simultaneously true that the United States has tremendous social problems, which we do, uh, and that the Mexican state is complicit in shipping fentanyl to the United States, which is also true. Uh, and that's the part that AMLO yeah. wants to deny because because his number one goal is to keep keep the Americans out. Uh, you know, and you and I heard this again in our conversations that that he's he's almost desperate to um, shift the yeah. spotlight from this because yeah. because he knows and everybody knows that any digging into this is going to uh, dredge up his own connections uh, right. to, to to the criminal cartels and his family's connections to the criminal cartels as well, which are robust to say the least. So he sends this letter to the Chinese. The Chinese have already responded uh, and they've, they've basically, they've, they, they, they basically said, oh yeah, we agree with you. That the United States is 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 bad, you know, everything that you would expect the communist Chinese mm -hmm. to say, um, but then the Chinese have said, "Well, it's not us uh, oh. either." And so and so it's sort of this this unproductive circle. But right. but you have to keep in mind that none of this was done in the vein of actual diplomatic policy making. It's a hundred percent for domestic consumption on right. on Amlo's part, and so mission accomplished in that case. Yeah, and I think no one wants to take responsibility. It's very easy to shift blame. And one other thing that the president recently was venting about is these new press reports that the NBA has been talking to the players union mm -hmm. and they had offered to stop testing or penalizing players for using marijuana. Right. So he, you know, he grabbed onto this and talked about how 
the U.S. is morally and socially decaying. And he said, actually, we are seeing the Basketball League has authorized players to smoke marijuana. How can that be? Imagine it shouldn't be allowed anywhere. So, you know, Mexico itself has legalized marijuana, right, for medical use and all of these things. And they have. I didn't know that. Yeah. And they have a, a problem with, you know, meth use as well. They're not immune to some of the problems that we have in the U.S., but sure. he comes and he says that Mexico doesn't have a drug problem because of the tight-knit family system and all of these mm-hmm. things. So it seems like he's flip-flopping a lot back and forth. AMLO, AMLO is, uh, this This is one interesting uh, facet of his, his personality, even though he's empowered a ton of like real kind of lunatic progressives. Um, who were inspired by American progressivism within his administration? We talked about Scheinbaum. Um, you know, there's the, she, she's the tip of the iceberg. He himself is is an aging 1970s like like a personally. I want to be I want to be bounded in how I say this, but like a personally conservative guy. Like you'd never know it, but he's right. he's anti-abortion. Like he's pro-life. Um, uh, he really he he genuinely doesn't believe that you should smoke pot. He thinks that's something that's crazy to do. He really does believe in the extended family, and actually, uh, the extended family for him is a substitute for a state welfare system. And these are a lot of positions that as as like an American social conservative like me would would tend to agree with in isolation. And so so you know I I think I think he's got and. Um, to kind of pile it on top of that, this is implicit in in his critique, but I do think that if you are in the Mexican state and society, um, uh, you, you might you might have a just critique of you know the Americans have been pressuring us for decades to eradicate mm-hmm. marijuana consumption or marijuana production and shipping, um, but then here you know here's the institutions of your society legalizing right. it. So why did we put our society through this? on your behalf. And honestly, that's not an illegitimate critique. It really isn't. But as with all things AMLO, he's seizing upon the detail to obscure the larger point, right. which is which is that. He's uh, good at that. Which, uh, right, right. Well, he's, he's a politician, um, uh, uh, but uh, which is which is that uh, that he and his regime are part of the problem yeah. uh, in this case. So. Well, I know we're almost out of time, um, so I want to start wrapping up. But the last thing I want to ask you about really quickly, while it's relevant, is the event that we had here at the foundation last week. Um, We had the Tejanos event about Tejano Impact. We did. Uh, It was on Thursday. Mm -hmm. So you were on the panel. You had this super interesting conversation with some other people about the impact that Tejanos have had. And then we also, we can can tease this and kind of continue talking about it in the next podcast. We'll put a link in the right. show description. We should. And we also unveiled some of the new research that we've been working on, our Mexican migration project. Could you kind of surface level, give a summary of that, and then we can tease and talk about it in the next podcast? We talked about a little bit of the draft of it. So this is not public research yet, uh, uh, but we do have a draft of this Mexican migration project. And what we ended up doing was looking at uh, which Mexicans uh, in each of the 50 U.S. states came from where. And so one of the theses uh, that uh, that I had was that Texas has a qualitatively different profile of, of kind of Mexican ingress into, into Texas versus other states. Right. And uh, I think we might have talked about this on previous podcasts. I don't remember uh, exactly. So, 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 so may the listeners pardon us if, this, if that is so. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, my, my thesis was that, uh, was that Texas probably got um, uh, Mexicans from sort of this northeastern tier, Nuevo León, Tamaulipas, Coahuila, uh, and that uh, California and the rest of the U.S. states 
really got southern uh, Mexicans, Oaxacans, mm -hmm. Chiapas, you know, Michoacan, uh, so on, maybe, you know, Jalisensis uh, to some extent. And uh, anyway, to kind of fast forward, and you'll see this when we release the research, and, and to my knowledge, we're the only institution, academic or otherwise, that has that has done any research like this, yeah. is that has turned out to be true. Uh, Texas, Texas, Mexicans in Texas tend to have their origins in Tamaulipas, uh, and and then in the Bajio, which is which is sort of this um, uh, you know broadly defined Norteño area that's uh, that is culturally quite different than the southern tier of Mexican states that really send their Mexicans to their their, their populations to places like California and things like that. And so one of the things that we're still diving into is uh, and this is going to be like a second stage of research is does that have social and political effects? I think it. I think it obviously does, uh, and I think it's explanatory, partially explanatory, of why uh, you see this this conservative renaissance and this rightward movement of Mexican Americans in Texas, but you don't see it in a place like California. Right. Uh, probably because there's a different cultural background. And again, uh, this is this is something that relies upon the incredible heterogeneity of Mexican society to sort of vindicate and express itself. Um, so it's very exciting. We're yeah. just at the beginning, and I'm looking forward to, to releasing the research. Unpacking it. Yeah. yeah. Thank you, Josh. And I'll make sure to link the panel for all of our listeners to, to be able to watch. But Thanks. thank you, Josh, for your time. Uh, we have a lot that we need to continue to talk about. But that's all for today. And thank you to all of our listeners for listening to The Hard Country. We'll see you next time.